0: Empire.
1: Called the fake news the enemy of the people,
0: and they are. It's a serious question. I appreciate your passion. I share it. I've addressed this question, I've addressed my personal feelings.
1: And I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. Listening to Just Ask the Question Adventures in Reporting with your host, Brian Caram. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Caram, today it's a pleasure to have with us Oladette O'Brien, former CNN anchor, has her own television show, and is, to me, one of what I like most is a great media critic. So when we come back, we're going to talk to her about the problems of the press. (laughs) Trumpsters, stick around, it'll be fun. Hi, and we're back. It is Just Ask a Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and joining us today is Soledad O'Brien. And I guess, Soledad, I'll just start off just asking you the question. What the hell's wrong with the press?
0: Oh, I love the press so much. Me I love too, the press. me I've been too. a reporter for 31 years, right? And so I think sometimes when you really love something, you really, really root for it, and you really, really want it to be good. And I think right now the press does not exactly many members of the press. And really, I'd say politically, the political press, your people, your yeah. people are really struggling more than most um, because they just don't often know how to handle Donald Trump. And a lot of the old rules... Uh, where you assume someone's telling the truth. They might be exaggerating, they might be spinning, but there's a a level of honesty Um, uh, where where someone has coherent thoughts, speaks in full sentences, um, doesn't (laughs) fabricate. I mean, I'm not even being sarcastic. I I mean, I think that it's a real challenge. Shoot, I should be interviewing you. A real challenge for many reporters. And I think when they think of their job as, you know, front row at the Trump show, it's very, it's, it's, it, it sort of breaks my heart, right? Because it gives away the power of being a White House correspondent, which is not the Trump show, and it's not the Obama show, and it's not the Bush show, and it's not the Clinton show. It's, it's a really important job. And, you know, I, I always felt like that title so was so dismissive of your own mission and your own work. Like, I mean, you couldn't diss yourself any harder, frankly. So so it's a long winded way of saying I think the political press just doesn't know how to handle uh, the president. And then you add to that um, social media, which has really changed how we think about information and give out information. And so many journalists, I think, take a lot of those things. I know take a lot of those things that the president says that are just, you know, uh, provable lies and they elevate them just by quoting him. And you know, if you quote people who are literally lying, if that sentence is untrue, um, you're really not doing a service to your viewers. So I think sometimes it comes down to as simple as everybody's kind of forgotten the mission and you gotta go back to like, what is our jobs here? Our jobs are about bringing truth to the audience, to our readers, to our right. viewers, and also helping them navigate complicated things, right? So that means you don't put people who lie on TV, you don't put people who are not experts on TV. But well, we have you an equal call, right to be uh, on you know, the television. No both sides. So yeah. you know the whole thing. But that's the yeah. long, long, long-winded answer on what's wrong. That's I, Well, I
1: I, I listen to what you're saying, and I think that part of the problem is we have... I remember when I first got into this business, and it was Helen Thomas, and the reason why I named this podcast Just Ask a Question, is she, she took me aside. She was one of my mentors, and Besides making me a great Lebanese meal at her house the first day I got in town, she took me aside and said, listen, doesn't matter what the answers to the questions are. It just matters that you just ask them. And we seem to be reticent to asking some of the important questions. I, I think you're right. We keep our head down. We play by the old rules. and we And we figure that what the guy is saying is worth disseminating because he is the president. And it takes well, and a little... you
0: know better than anybody, right, which yeah. is if you ask the wrong question, then someone's going to yank your press pass, <clears throat> and you know better <laughs> than anybody that suddenly, you know, you won't, you'll be a persona non grata, and if you have a great seat the front row at the Trump show, you know, you potentially could lose that, and then what does that mean for your career? So I, I do think that people are very wary of asking really challenging questions, and you have a president, frankly, who's going to dodge it anyway. So why right. bother? I think is kind because of because you've got
1: to get it thinking. out there.
0: You do, but you end up having there. these really random, you know, asking Kaylee McEnany, you know, are you? Do you vow to always tell us the truth? It's like, but no one. I'm not even sure that's a question you should ask your high school boyfriend, right? Like, <laughs> that's, I mean, it's just a stupid. <laughs> part, right? It doesn't make any sense, and and it actually gets this big long news cycle, and it just becomes it's it's so absurd, and it's. As an outsider, because I don't cover the White House, um, I'm not a political reporter, um, it's just embarrassing. I, I was literally embarrassed for the person who was asking that question and the people who then ran with it as if it was uh, a real answer.
1: Yeah, and what I find funny being in that bubble is when we don't follow each other up on questions and we battle each other to try and get a question and we don't listen to what's being said and react, listening and-
0: Well, I think some of that's social media, right? Some of that yeah. is, what's the chunk where I get to run my question and his answer, and that elevates me in my newsroom, it elevates me on social media, and I'm I'm a player, I'm in this game. I, I When I would cover press conferences around breaking news stories, I did a lot of breaking news, not no coverage of the White House. You know, it was a similar thing, right? Who Who's the one who throws out the question to the governor? Because that's the chunk, and if you're lucky, someone takes your question and uses it on all the newscasts. That means it was a really good question. that's just a fact. That's how people think about that real estate, right? It it helps build your career. And I think, um, again, this president's very different. And if your goal is to be successful on social media, uh, rather than, you know, here's a question that's really gonna force an answer to a guy who admittedly is very weakly when it comes to answers, and a liar. you know, I just think you have a, a meeting of, you know, failing on all sides.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think it, we just don't follow each other up. I think sometimes the better question is to listen to someone else and then follow up on what they're, they've are they asked because, and to drill down on it, actually. because right,
0: less- he's already spent the whole right. first one spinning and creating. And that's that's actually where you kind of get, but because he, he's not very good at remembering what he just said <laughs> and because it's clearly a lie. You know, that's where you catch someone. That's where you kind of get the, the rubber meets the road. And and I agree, if there's no follow-up, then everything is a one-off question, which is often a good starting place, but just kind of ends, doesn't go anywhere.
1: Well, I think he uses it to manipulate us, too. And, and I think, uh, you know, if you only get the one-off questions and then you limit the number of reporters before you, you limit the actual uh, interaction that will create deep content that we need to to uh, generate when we're covering the present. We don't do it. We And it's, I think it's real tough during uh, these times because you have a limited amount of people in front of him. It's always the same people. It's 12 to 14 people in a room. And so he can look good because he's limited his access both in time and in numbers. And he doesn't have to worry about many follow-up questions. And then the same with Kaylee. I think you know she looks great in a small setting with 14 people, but how would she do in a room of 150 people when they're asking follow-ups. I I think uh, this president, in particular- I I would
0: argue, I don't think she looks great because I think it's so messy. I don't think she does either. Right, I mean, I think it looks passable and I think the same thing. It's like he, you know, both of them just lie. So that's your little asterisk under all of that as well. Um, So, you know, I, I think you guys have a very challenging job, but I do think that there are some who've made it clear. Oh, if this is gonna be the structure, then the way for me to get ahead is to do this yeah and and i get it right and so i've i've been i've been disappointed and i do think a lot of the the framing um of some of these stories uh is really sad and there's a good one today i think it's in the new york times of course um where they talk about joe biden saying 10 to 15 percent the headline is joe biden says 10 to 15 percent of americans aren't good people you know, and it was actually a chunk of a very thoughtful answer about how Americans are really good. And there's a tiny percentage, eh, maybe 10 to 15 percent who bubble, right? So so trying to turn and I, listen, I I have written a million stories and 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 been on air with I get it, tease out the most interesting thing, but it also has to be the center of what the person was really saying, right? You've got to keep it in context. Contact. So if he was saying, you know, I have identified 50, he really wasn't. He was like he was actually saying. I think it's a relatively small number. I think actually 85% of Americans are really good people. They're decent people. And what we have to do is figure out unity, blah, blah, blah. So it's always interesting to me to watch uh, the New York Times kind of do backflips to get, especially when when it comes to Trump, who says really despicable, overtly despicable things, and their headlines don't reflect it, to have a headline for Joe Biden, who was not my candidate. I mean, you know, uh, (laughs) but, but, but to have a headline for Joe Biden that, you know, quote something and doesn't really take the full context. I mean, it's just, it just, it just bums me out because I want to like the New York times. I'm a double subscriber to the New York times. I get the New York times at home. I get the New York times at work. Uh, but I think they I do such a poor job. Yeah. Well, you know, I <laughs> also gives you the online option. Yeah, so uh, it just, it's very, it's, it, it's disappointing because I think um, I sometimes watch them and just think, God, your guys are just such a mess. So I mean, the whole debacle the other day about this, you know, Tom Cotton op-ed was just a mess. Oh, yeah. <laughs> how do you defend? How do you defend an op-ed? You we find out later in the day. I mean, and and everything with the New York Times is a twelve-hour arc, right? It starts off in the morning like that, ah, and then people yeah. come out strong and defend it, and you know, and stand by it, and then other people weigh in, and then other people fight against it. Right and by the end of the day, well, it turns out he hadn't really read it actually ahead of time before it, you know got printed and and you're like well sweet so so wait actually I think the story here is you publish an article that you actually never read and 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 you've defended it all morning for something you never read like wouldn't wouldn't you lead with that I'd probably be like girl you know I didn't read that thing that would be my first out of the box right like I don't know. I find them very exhausting. It's well, just an exhausting time.
1: Do you, do you find that Donald Trump has a, a point then when he says fake news?
0: No, you know, I, I know everybody thinks fake news is a new thing, but, but it's not two things. Well, when I was reporting black in America, which was the series I did uh, for CNN when I was there back in 2008, you know, people in the community would say to you, I think this is fake news, but they wouldn't say the word's fake news. They would say, you guys never want to cover this community. Right. Like you're just here now and it's good for you. Well, but when we ask you to come and do stories, right? So what they were saying was we see you, we see how you tell stories and you frame stories, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, so that's fake news. Um, the other day I was on well, the other day, months ago now, because we don't fly anymore, but I was on a flight and the board had, the flight was departing at 8 30 p.m but it was already 8 45 and everybody milling around was like fake news fake news. <laughs> so i think it's become a little bit of uh a joke but i also think it's captured this sense which i i'm very sympathetic to of like the media is not here for us and they're not right. really here helping us and and they're not really reflecting what's going on and so i think this the feel of fake news has actually been around for a little while. And let me tell you, especially in minority communities who understand exactly how they're going to be portrayed.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. But see, I go back to, all right, bear with me for a second. I go back to Ronald Reagan and Mark Fowler, who was the head of the FCC. And up until Reagan, we always looked upon the uh, airwaves as a sacred public trust.
0: Trust,
1: And Mark Fowler said, no, in 1981, he said, "No, it's no different than selling toasters." So he deregulated the industry, and corporate entities began buying each other up. And so, 35, 30, well, I'm showing my age. You're a young lady. I'm an old fart. But so here we are in 2020, almost 40 years later, and we don't have we have fewer reporters in the streets and fewer companies owning um, uh, journalistic outlets than we did in 1981.
0: Right. Well, some of that is, I think, um, model shifted, right? I mean, the model has shifted. People look at news at one point. When I started news, news was a a, a loss leader, right? It didn't have to make money. Right. what's also changed is news is entertainment. You know, people in news really started real thinking they were competing against Entertainment Tonight. Yeah. is Hollywood. And that, you know, in order to get eyeballs, they had to kind of dumb it down and, and not want people, you know, it wasn't really serving the public when it came to explaining issues um, someone once called people news actors and news actresses. And there was. Yes. A, I always thought like, oh, there's a little bit of a point to that. So, you know, I, I think a lot of those things have changed over the last 40 years. And oh, yeah. I think organizations have recognized, you know, if you can turn your news readers into celebrities, if you can, um, if you can, you know, leverage outrage, if you can have, a person on the left and a person on the right yelling at each other, you create that sense of urgency and anger that is actually quite expensive to do on tape, right? And yeah. if you're going to do it in video, that's an expensive shoot. But if you're just going to, I'm going to book this person and the more kind of fringy and over the top they are, and make sure you book the other person on the other side who's also fringy and over the top, then you get that, that clash, right? You get that that vibe of, oh my God, something's happening here. When it's actually just two talking hits. Well, by the way, we'll be back in the next hour because they've been booked you know, through these windows.
1: Yeah, and and then, so I
0: think all of those things have made that change.
1: Yeah, I, well, and see, I think that's also a function of what happened with when we began buying each other up. I always look at, and you talk about, we'll go back to talking a little bit about the minorities being covered. I, I started my career and our second job out of the box was down in Laredo. And in yeah. 1983, when I was down in Laredo, <clears throat> there were three newspapers. Two of them were English, one was Hispanic. There were four television stations, three network affiliates, and one Hispanic. And three or four uh, radio stations that covered news, 100,000 people. But today, because everyone has bought everybody else up, there's 300,000 people in Laredo. When I went back to cover the story that <clears throat> when uh, Donald Trump said you know, he was there and there was a shootout on the border he wasn't there i I was there he was hundred ten miles away. I was standing in the field going I don't see him anywhere but that's another story but you you now in Laredo with three hundred thousand people three times the number of people because of consolidation of the media you have only one television station and one newspaper so three yes, times the number of shocking. people and three times fewer. All, you know, play, yeah, and and that's that's you know the corporations have bought each other up, and so you end up and without the fairness doctrine, I think you're right. You end up with people just uh, attracting money, being on different ends of the spectrum, yelling at each other, and I don't know what. Well, it's just cheap. Yeah. Listen,
0: I mean, one thing we started when, when I do a show called Matter of Fact on Hearst. Uh, we, we produce it with Hearst. And we got to plug that network. Uh, thank you. It's a syndicated show, and one thing we when we started, it's kind of crazy because. Um, the uh, we we weren't live right and everything was the president said last night we wake up this morning this is what happened overnight but we were pre take we take the show on thursdays it airs in most markets saturday night or sunday morning right so we couldn't I, I really was just so anxious about like i can't be in this news cycle and we realized that that could actually be a benefit and not a curse yeah that when you're not able to be part of live then you have to step back and ask yourself so what do we deliver to our audiences? And w- our ratings have been so great, and they've been great partly because I think we we just don't think of things like the left versus the right, because I don't think people in the world actually go through their day like Thank that, you. right? I think yes. people in the world try to figure out housing. People in the world try to figure out why are you know why is diabetes medicine so expensive? And sort of doesn't matter if they're a Republican or a Democrat or an independent or they voted or they didn't vote or they live here. It really is a this is a bad process. This is a bad policy. Uh, how do we talk about it and how do we educate people about, you know, what the options are. And so it ended up being kind of, once I wrapped my head around maybe, okay, we're never going to be live. We're never, ever going to keep up with a president who makes news every night because he would just come up with something every night, every
1: five minutes, which,
0: you know, so we can stay out of it. Like, like then we're not in that field. (laughs) And it really, I think helped our show do very well. And so, um, you know, I, I think when you look at everything, what do they say? When, when when you have a hammer, everything's a nail. And I think when you have, you know, Republican pundits and Democratic pundits, then everything is going to be a political debate because that's where they are in the
1: spectrum, in, yeah.
0: in, in the landscape, right? Yeah. Like they see everything this way. And so we decided that we would have experts. So if we're going to talk about poverty, somebody who is in If we're going to talk about homelessness, we'd have an actual homeless person who, by the way, I have no idea what their political leanings are. And those things are often very, very complicated. Yeah. We did an interview with a guy who was looking for housing.
1: They're, they're the ones. Lives in, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
0: Lives, oh, I was gonna say he lives in San Diego, and he, you know, San Diego, like most cities now, you can't afford, um, you know, a two-bedroom apartment on a, a right. regular salary for a family of four, or a, a minimum wage salary, and so he got an apartment in in Mexico, and he reversed commutes from Mexico to his job in San Diego. He's not. He's not Hispanic. He's wow. not Latino. He, he, I don't even think like, he speaks Spanish. He just was like, I can afford an apartment down here. I just have to walk across the bridge every day to go it's to normal. my job. That's a minimum wage job. And, and again, like, it's utterly irrelevant what his politics are. And, right. you know, I just don't, it doesn't matter. It's about housing. And so I think when we were able to start thinking of those things as a plus and not a minus, that was very helpful.
1: Well, I don't think it can keep up. I, I mean, I write a weekly column and I have a hard time being in that. Uh, inside, you know, every day in the White House and being able to stay up to the minute with the president. You have to take a, a step back because he spends so much crap during the course of one day that if you try to stay, you know, topical, you're buried. I think that's one of the problems that we have in the press is we just kind of, we, we hook onto something on the day, you know, here's the news of the day, and we go for it, and we don't ever take a step back and take a look and see what's actually going on and, or why. And it's kind of and hard. And I
0: think also another issue is they imbue the president with sort of the hopes and dreams of what they think a regular person would do. And I'm always surprised that three and a half years later, right, every, I mean, there's no, you almost, <clears throat> it's a joke. There's but, the, you know, today he was presidential. And when Dana Bash the other day was saying, you know, I think we need to applaud the president. You're like, for what? have you been listening to any of this stuff? It's so insane to me. It just, it's so crazy. Just, just report what the person is saying and also we know a lot of what he's saying one is going to turn out to be not true also he won't follow through on it right it's just a yeah. shiny dangling ob- object and so I'm I actually am always very surprised that the political press kind of falls for it it's a little bit like you know Charlie Brown and Lucy where you're like you guys just fall for it and the 99th time like still you're falling for it it's so crazy to me like how are you still falling for it but did in, anybody not He became presidential because he read up a, you know, he the, the president seemed very moved by, you know, and, and he he seems to feel Maggie Haberman wrote. He seems to feel George Floyd's death, you know, deeply. because You're like, I, I, why? why would you ascribe that to a person who in so many instances has showed you, has shown you that that's just not the case. That's not who he is. Yes. So I'm always, I'm always interested in who gets a lot of that, second chances, third chances, tenth chances of being a sentient human being. We're under the, under the skin. They feel things and they're emotive and they have good values, right? like The idea is that they have this normal sense of values and goodness that's imbued in all people. And then there's a whole bunch of people who just don't, right, who are sort of portrayed as right. sociopaths. And it's just a very odd thing.
1: I, I will continue this thought. <laughs> we'll be right back. I, boy, i got something to say on that. But we'll be right back right after this so Solidad, you were saying why do we continue to fall for it i i think it's because we want to be part of the in crowd baby i mean part of it is that part of it is that you do want to humanly reach out and say god he, he the bar is so low he, you know, he took a breath today without insulting someone. Maybe
0: he's making. This is the moment if the president could stand up and address. You're like, who the hell are you looking at? I mean, again, I would say if over the last three and a half years, every so often he was able to stand up and give, you'd be like, OK, well, sometimes he can deliver. But yeah. there's been no evidence at all. No. Never. And so I always, again, really wonder, like, why do reporters give that person the benefit of the doubt? And so many other people are not given the benefit of the doubt.
1: I think they um, want to give the president the benefit of the doubt because he's the president, and you, you respect the office and the Constitution and what we put together. But he doesn't. And if you can't, it, it, at some point in time, no, if you I can't think, separate, I'm gonna disagree
0: yourself- with you on that because I think that they give him the benefit of the doubt because they imbue him personally with something they just can't Ugh. understand that someone can really be That's completely horrible. narcissistic and sociopathic, right? Like, I think it's, I think it's this wishful thing. It reminds me a lot of. You, you oh my might gosh, be right. I'm doing, all my, I'm doing all my dating analogies, right? Where you're like, <laughs> this will be the time when the boyfriend calls you. And, you're, you know, and I would always and tell them, them like, it's not going to happen. <laughs> they're not, you know, the kind of person who does this mean thing is also the kind of person who, it's intentional. Like, they meant it. Right. This is, run for the hills. There's no version. But in their heart, I know, I know in his heart that he's going to do blah, blah, blah. And I just find it so amazing. Because, yes, of course you should respect the well, office of the president. That, that uh, one. But you— as a human being, do you keep giving someone, do you keep imbuing them with characteristics that they have never shown? They, I don't right. think
1: so. I think what you say brings me to two points. That I'm often, and you might be right. Uh, but what I think is that at the end of the day, we're sending the wrong people to cover the president. We should be sending our, our crime beat reporters and our war correspondents because covering this presidency is a, lo- a lot different than any presidency I've ever covered. And it's more well, like... You know, I know you're crime. only
0: half joking, but I, I do no, think that's uh, you know, it does bother me when political reporters are covering a pandemic, their reporting is a mess. Uh, and I do think what you really feel in a lot of the political reporter jockeying, right. Is here's how I started this, right. Here's my moment in this right, back and right.
1: in- forth. I was in
0: the front row at the Trump show. I, I'm always so horrified by that title. And by the way, I think Jonathan Carl's a nice guy. Um, I don't know him super well, but, but I'm always horrified by that title. Cause it's like,
1: it I think he doesn't get the point. You literally your
0: own self in the foot around what your job is and your responsibility. You know, so in, in the 50s and 60s, journalists would have been like, holding them accountable. Right. The story of my time, you know, yeah. in the hell escape, that was D.C. But this idea of like, you're the guy holding him accountable and you're going to call it the Trump show. Well, it makes you really sound sad like... Or, you know, or, or writing, uh, you know, columns about how Trump is a reality show. It's like, yeah, that would be really hysterical except for, all the people who are DACA, young people, and the, the people who've been deported—who's, you know, really are dealing with legal challenges, policing challenges in an America. Like they're not—they're not just sitting on the sidelines, laughing and mocking Trump voters. They're sitting there saying, "Holy right. shit!" When he says that, it actually encourages police to be more brutal. When he well, says that, yeah, he it has, actually yeah. makes people you know, hate Latinos. It puts me at risk when he says the Chinese virus, you know? So like, I get that a lot of these correspondents just don't, they're so, they so don't think about anybody, but their own point of view on something. It's very disheartening.
1: Well, I, and and the title to me that you refer to is dismissive of your own role in the process, front row at the Trump show makes it sound like you, you bought a ticket and you're sitting there and you're waiting for the circus. And that's not what you do. I find it uh, disheartening, and I what bothers me sometimes about reporters that I see in the room is when you got the president of the United States suggesting that you should inject disinfectant in your body. At that point in time, really, is there any doubt that he cannot come to grips with reality? And him and I mean, why aren't we doubling Which down? Which some
0: experts say might not be safe. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and <yeah. laughs> when the New York Times writes that, I mean, I, that is, I, you uh, laugh, but it's uh, so sad. The right? New York Times that. I mean, you have both sides of yourself to death. Uh, it just becomes insane. It's just so. It's everything is so. It just makes no sense to me. So it is. It's a very disheartening time, and I, I really feel badly because. I love journalism, but I, I but there's a lot of journalists
1: who I think are just not doing a very good job. I agree. I, I, I love I, There's nothing I love more than, you know, when I was young, I wanted to travel the world on somebody else's nickel and, and hold people accountable. And uh, my mother always said I was too curious and I asked too many damn questions. So I figured out <laughs> I had a place. You're like, what job is
0: that? Yeah, what, what job is... should I be? What job should I have to do all of those things? <laughs> yes.
1: I like to piss on politicians, and I've been doing it since I was an infant. Um, or as my mom would, and there's a story behind that. I actually peed on John Kennedy, but there's a, Oh my god! Yeah, my dad picked me. He came to Louisville to visit. My dad had the baby, me, I, I was John John's age or a little older. And so he brings me to the front of the line and here comes the president and he picks up this baby and holds this baby. And I, I went all over him. And as my mom said, I've been pissing on him ever since, so, yeah. <laughs> but I, I find that we, <laughs> I find that we don't. Um, one of the things that we don't do, and, and, or, and correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, you've been out. Uh, you're younger than I am, so I, you know, I know. I won't hit you. About up. two and a half
0: seconds. Go ahead. Yeah, but you. I'm not a grandma yet. I know you're a grandpa, but yeah, I'm not a grandma
1: yet. I'm a grandfather. Hey, hey. let um, But you uh, to change it. I think we're going to have to have people invested in it a little bit more, and we don't get paid the wages to do it.
0: Yeah, I think that is a huge problem, uh, and you also need—I um, think you need people to also hold other people accountable, right? I think—I think, I think um, you know, money is the driver. Yeah. The reason CNN does these panels of people yelling at each other is that financially it makes sense. It makes sense. And the minute it stops making sense financially, the minute the ratings don't aren't good enough to offset the cost, blah blah blah. Then it'll change, and not one second before then. Right. That's kind of where we are as an industry. You know, the idea of like the big J, and I do, you know, I do journalism, and we're going to follow the story no matter what. I think those stories are very few and far between.
1: I agree. That's, and the shame of that is, I don't think we'll see that the the, the dynamic has changed. It'll take someone to do it to show because we we right now we're fighting over smaller and smaller pieces of the pie. Right. But we still try the same old metrics to make sure things work. Until someone steps right. forward and you know has the balls to do it and to, and to change it, I don't think it'll change much. But I, I, think I don't think you'll fair. find that at the networks because it's uh, they're too you know cut and dry on what they should and should not be. So, what w- what would be your perfect idea for a new show besides yours?
0: You know. I feel really lucky. I'm a correspondent for Real Sports on HBO, and I love that as a sports show because it's not about sports. Everyone works on the show would say, no, it's literally about sports. But it's more about all those things that I think we think about sports, right? Character, you know, moments where you make decisions about good and evil and who you want to be. And, you know, like this, it's sort of on a plane of up here. It's not, here's how the game went and here are the scores. And it's not even here's the narrative of the teams and the bigger picture. It's as human beings, what decisions did we make? And the, yes, the prism is sports, but it's, you know, but but sports is a moment to be able to prove who you are as a human. And I wish that we would do more. And I love that show. I think it's, I always say it's the best show on TV and I do a different show. Our show is <laughs> a very good show, but I think really your real sports been on a million years and it has won a million. Oh, um and I like so it. I, mean, I really a- feel like a show where you can have these conversations, we frame everything as this. Democrats say this, Republicans say this, but what's the truth? What's the truth of it? Some things are knowable, and you should be able to tell people. And what's the spin? And why are people motivated? Why would someone spin it this way? What's the reason behind someone spinning it that way? I just wish a show that would give much more explanation, as opposed to one of the things that I really find frustrating in political reporting is you know here's what's happened in the last twenty horse race. It's it's just very, it's not really useful, right? I mean, what's always useful is this person is saying this because what you need to understand is that, you know, that plot of land they're talking about, their dad owns the farm next door. So when they say this, let me be sure to explain to you that they're poised to make $5 million when they sell their, now you're like, oh, okay, that gives me context for understanding why people do what they do and I, I think we just don't do enough of that so in uh in political reporting I, I wish we had much more of that
1: well that would that takes time and people usually don't want to donate the time and the money to that they they yep. get involved in the horse race aspect of it because as you said that that drives yes. shiny
0: the shiny over here yeah. shiny object over here Yep, yeah
1: but yep. i think there are people who would love that type of reporting and i think it would be it would behoove us to indulge at least one or two shows in that. And I'll, I'll defend you on real sports. I, I coached high school football for many years, and one of the things I always said is, in the real world, the people I've gotten along with the best are people who played a team sport because they understand how to work in a team. And um, sports are important.
0: Well, my kids went to schools where they had to play sports, and I yeah. was always it was one of my favorite thing about their schools is that. Um, because I think the lessons that you learn, some sports that are good at and some not good at. <laughs> right. and learning, you still get out of sports a lot, even if you're not the star player, even if you're not even top 10 star player, you're just there. And I, I do. I, I really have loved sports for my kids because I think you're right. It teaches you how to deal with people and how to move Toward a goal together when you have all these different independent pieces, and that's that's a very tough thing. That's a good lesson.
1: Yeah, a lot of people in government are only single tennis players oh, <laughs> man. or golfers. Don't even
0: don't even tell
1: me, right? <laughs> that's now hardly any of them have ever played a team sport. You can't find basketball, baseball, or football mm-hmm. players, or even mm-hmm. soccer players among them. They all played a single sport. I swam. Well, keep swimming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we're going to take a short break, and when we we'll come back, some uh, final thoughts. There we go. Three. I should get you out on time, right? Oh, that's yeah. perfect. Thank right. you so yeah. much.
0: You're so oh. nice to do that. Oh well, they're all. It's an interesting. We're doing this conversation about race, and everybody's just very, very nervous. So they've been hitting. me, You know, they all want to talk it through before we talk it through. <laughs> which is well, that was yeah, what we were going to so do. Because I, I really, I really understand um, how tough that is. That,
1: actually, that's where I was going to go in the last segment. So, Great. <laughs> okay, in three, two, one. Uh, with us still is uh, Soledad O'Brien. And Soledad, I guess uh, in covering what we've all covered in the last uh, several weeks uh, since what happened in Minneapolis, race is at the forefront of everyone's discussion. And I guess my question to you as uh, you know, i i've been i I will never know what it's like to be an African American who has to go through what you have to go through on a daily basis or what a woman has to go through on a daily basis. I know what I've had to go through as a Lebanese American when I've been called off been accused of being a Muslim and a, I've been told called a, a head and a raghead and why don't I go back to my own country? I had someone in the White House ask me what my last name meant so i, I said, you know it's a last name it comes after the first name so I, I get a little inkling of it. But today it seems to be so energized and, and 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 of course polarized. Is what are your thoughts? Do you think we can reach a point in this country where we? Yeah, get you it? know, I
0: think this is a chickens come home to roost moment. Uh, again, I've been doing documentaries about inequality and racial inequality and inequality and housing and policing and economic inequality and educational inequality for And right. so, I think at some point. You know, I think people who think that the story is George Floyd, the individual, uh, are, are missing it a little bit. Uh, obviously, he's the focus, but some of it is people are just tired. They're just tired of being able to see someone. And he's not the first. He's not even the fifth. You know, being able to see someone caught on camera being murdered. Right. And, and, then, by police. and then everybody sort of asks, well, I don't think you really saw that. Right. I mean, that's not what you saw. And so I think, um, I actually think more and more white people began to sort of say like, holy cow, I, I saw that unfold. And, and it went on for so long, like nine minutes is a long freaking time that it just started having people begin to recognize like, wow, maybe all the things that I have thought about policing, that the police are usually right, that you know, if someone's been stopped, that they, they probably did something wrong. That if that guy would just you know, behave and be quiet, he'd be fine and everyone would treat him with respect. I think what we're seeing unfold now is people are really getting some insight into what policing is like and not just for African-Americans and certainly for African-Americans, but not just for them, right? That poor elderly man who's now in the hospital in Buffalo who was pushed by the police, you know, and and the the way that story unfolded with the, the press release essentially saying he tripped and fell and everyone's like, but we literally saw him pushed. I mean, I can even tell you, but by this particular officer right here, that guy. And then when people bent down to help, they were pushed from behind by their own colleagues. Like, don't touch him. As his you can see the pool of blood coming out behind his head. And he's obviously 70, 80 years old. Right. So I think we're at a really interesting time because um people are really beginning to say, oh my gosh, maybe they do go after people who are who are not violent. Maybe. The cops do say things that aren't true. I think for a lot of comfortable suburban people, that's a bit of a stretch, right? The way the way policing is in your life is just very different. Well, that's um, that does, the whole that life does. you're told, listen, anything goes wrong, you run to the police. I, there's a great video the other day. I think it took place in Van Nuys, right? Where the, the black family is being, their business is being looted. So they're waving, trying to wave down the cops. The cops drive by. Eventually the cops circle back around and the cops come. And they're like, oh my God, thank God the cops are here because there's right. looters. And the cops come up and they arrest the family, Ugh. and you're like, and and, and you know, it just it's it's a two minute and twenty second video, and it's amazing because it's kind of that if they were white, that just wouldn't happen. Everyone would walk onto the scene with the expectation right. that these people are the victims, that they're going to tell us what happened, and 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 the reverse, of course, for the black family. And I think at some point, people just see that enough, and they begin to believe it. Well, I think so, social, social media yeah. has been helpful. I think social media uh, and I don't know that, that people fully understand how challenging and traumatic that is for a lot of people. Well, I how could you not? I mean, look,
1: if, if I think it's always been there, I think social media helps bring it out, but I mean, I remember Richard Pryor doing the joke back in the 70s about, well, you know, you're, you in suburban white America, you don't mind the police because you know them differently than I do. It's like, "Hello Officer Timkins, let's go bowling." He says, I know him as I'm taking my wallet out of my license. Do not shoot me. You know that. So I, yeah, I think it's, it's a, a different
0: experience. But I don't know that people want to sit in other people's experiences and figure it out. I, I, um, I really don't. You. So I, I think that that's the challenge. I, I do. I think that this has been very eye opening. You look at that. There are going to be these moments in policing where you see people and you're like, wow, this is going to be very eye opening for people that they shoved a 75. There's no reason at all to right. shove seventy, Right. Right. None. And, and that the, to see that and to have someone then tell you that he tripped and fell, well, yes, backwards when he was shoved by a police officer who we could see on camera. You know, I just think I think moments like that are really um, eye opening for people who want to believe most people are good. There's always a few bad apples, um, you know, ninety nine percent of people who are stopped done something wrong and the system works like it's supposed to and so telling these stories and showing these stories where that doesn't happen i think it's really important
1: i agree with you i think it is important i think it's also important that you know i was i was in the uh, protest the day that uh, trump decided to come out and gas everybody so he could have a photo op and it was as peaceful as i've seen those protests uh i mean the day before was more riotous i mean they were throwing bottles and had taken a gate down cops did nothing But on the day, on the Monday, when they decided to do that and uh, gas everybody, which they claimed later wasn't gas, but it looked like gas to me. I was there. Hey, what do I know? Um, They're gassing everybody and people running away. And what I noticed among the people that were there, that there were African-Americans who were upset that there were African-American police officers, local police officers, and called them traitors. And I don't think it gets any better until we...
0: <laughs> yeah, because I think, again, it goes back to not thinking of individuals. Right. These, these are systemic problems, right? I mean, if you think There's of it as... point this, That officer who pushed the guy worked in a system where it, it, it was not completely abhorrent to push a guy, right? Because if it had been, everyone would have stopped and been like, holy cow, did you see, see... Officer Bob do that? But that didn't happen. What happened was they shoved him, they kept walking, and no one helped the guy, and they said that they were going to get EMTs. And the few police officers who bent down to be helpful were pushed from behind by their own you know, teammates, basically. Like, don't stop. Keep it going. So so that's a sign that there's a system, that there there's a go. training. This, and, and so if you either you buy into the system or you fight against the system. I actually think I've talked. I've interviewed a lot of black officers for docs that I've done, and I think it's really hard on them. Yeah, it because is. Because in, in the system, you, your life can be saved by your – Partner, your colleagues, your, you know, but also outside of the system, they are often stopped themselves. They recognize. I mean, as you know, many whistleblowers have come forward who yeah. say like I, you know, on the days that I wasn't wearing my uniform, my own colleagues, you know, would have shot me or claimed, you know, try to plant a gun on me. So I just think it's it's a it, the minute you stop thinking about things as individuals and think, you know, it's not George Floyd per se. It's a system that allows somebody, when he sees cameras rolling,
1: to to do it, to get away with it. If
0: you think about it, like even the guy who's pushed, everybody's standing there with a cell phone. Yeah. Whenever I see someone with a cell phone, I've been in this situation where I'm trying to return something to a store, it's not going well. You know, and and everyone's like on their phone, you're like, you know what, here's what I become. Hi, so I'm wondering, can I get some help? You know, I don't get meaner. (laughs) I don't want to be on camera screaming at somebody. I don't want to be on camera. You know, I don't want to be screaming at somebody. So I'm always amazed, right? What does it say when somebody doesn't stop and and, and is on camera and is aware they're on camera? Uh, I think that lady in Central Park, Amy Cooper, right? I mean, really good example. The guy's literally shooting her. What does she say? I'm going to tell them you're African-American and I'm going to tell them you're threatening me. She She, knows exactly what she's doing. She knows how to punch the Listen, You need to know, sir, how this shit works. The way this shit works is, I can claim these things, and I can put your life in danger because police will arrive, and they will assume I'm telling the truth, and,
1: and you are not. That's well. To your point, there's a couple people. There's a two. I think you should you would enjoy talking to. One is a former chief of police in Montgomery County, who used to be the also the president of um uh well, if get it right ex- president of the major cities police chiefs uh association. Mm-hmm. And dealt with uh, the administration, Barack Obama and Clinton and Bush and Trump. And he said when he met Trump, Trump told him, "Hey, um, <clears throat> you ought to be glad now you have a friend in the White House." And he said, "You know, we've always had a friend in the White House, Mr. President, before you. You know that." And he talks about the need for better methods of uh, weeding out racists who yeah. sign up to be I'm police. Trying. Listen, I, I tell he, you, I, I would be a terrible police officer
0: because I would be anxious and nervous and, you know, we need to be able to rely on their training and if
1: yeah, you know, I can't get better into the training space,
0: well, I, I freak out. So, so yeah, no, I, I fully understand that. I, so I think some of it is also just training, I, yeah. I think. And also, how do you think about the communities? How come in my community in Manhattan, the police there think about protecting and serving? Right. You know, but in other communities where I've done docs, they would not describe themselves, and also I don't think, I think that that's they gotta see be themselves outreach to the as community. protecting and serving as their job.
1: Yeah, I, I think what he pointed out there has to be better outreach, and you got to go to the places where you're not liked, and the police aren't liked, and you got to talk to them and have a dialogue and communicate and let them know that you're there to help them. Then the second guy I think you should talk to is a kid I coached in high school football as a police officer in D.C., took a knee for the protesters. And mm. uh, the police, you talk about systemic problems, he had other officers get mad at him for that and yank him Ooh, up from the Oh, I'm his sure. Feet.
0: I'm sure it's an us versus them, right? I mean, yeah, it's that's... a really it's a really scary thing. It's a really scary thing.
1: So, uh, bottom line, we'll, we'll we'll leave this with uh what do you think would be the best way to cure the problems of society? That's <laughs> so- <laughs> Kind of a big question yeah, I, I the problems
0: of the media all right how do you is, solve the
1: problems of the media you know
0: i think one of the strategies that i've tried to use is i try to specifically name people people in the media um you know certainly national media are famous and well known and, and they can defend themselves and i think they need to be named i think they get mad they get really mad yeah. when to point out the things that they've done and i don't care it makes no difference to me you know it's one of the fun things about being in your mid-50s it's like you really <laughs> it doesn't matter um you know I'm but I do you. think it can't just be generically this is bad, this is good. It's got to be this is bad, and this is why, and here are the words that were used, and this is how this is wrong, and this is why this headline is wrong, and this is why the New York Times is failing you, and this is why this reporter is not doing a good job, and and here's reporters who are doing a good job, and here's a story that's interesting, and here's a point of view that I like. I try to boost a lot of stuff, so I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I'd how, love to do that
1: got... show. That would be a fun show to do. <laughs> reverse shot
0: (laughs) man oh man so who knows but i do like journalism and i think there's a lot of good people in it so i'm hopeful that we can solve some of these issues and people people know people are getting
1: wiser well and and i think bottom line is look you could be even good reporters make mistakes it's not like you're gonna bat 100 you know you're not gonna bat a thousand you're gonna come up to bat and you know, I remember talking to Sam Donaldson years ago and he was telling me, I've, I've asked some bad questions. I've done some bad stories. He goes, I'm a human being. I make mistakes. I keep going. Okay. And when we acknowledge that, we, we try to live up to a standard that we can't and then hold others accountable to a standard they can't be held to.
0: I completely agree. I completely agree. Yeah. And I think the minute you start as a journalist, start being... Uncomfortable apologizing and saying, "I really didn't understand this, or I messed this up, or you know, I got it wrong. I got it five years ago. I got this one wrong." Right. And, you know, minute you can't do that. Then again, you know, what's your job? Your job is to inform and educate the public. And if you've made a mistake, then you need to admit it and continue to inform and educate the public.
1: Solidada, thank you for your time. It was a lot of fun. We thank come you. back sometime. Nice to talk
0: with you, finally Yeah,
1: yeah. It's good to see you finally. I mean, you know, uh, well via whatever we can do these days. <laughs> Still exactly. Own coffee. Right. leaving their
0: house. <laughs> yeah. Nice to see you. Thanks again. Thank Take
1: you. care. Bye-bye. And that was Soledad O'Brien. Thanks for joining us today. And uh, we'll be back with you. My name is Brian.